Welcome to a beautiful day in the Swamp Ward. Down a gentle slope from here is the Cataraqui River, on its way to meet Lake Ontario. A causeway crosses the river, connecting Kingston to the east. And the hum of cars on the causeway is a sound that people who live here know well. Hot summer nights, brisk winter mornings, it's always there. In six episodes, this podcast series introduces you to the Swamp Ward through its sounds and its voices. I've spent a lot of time talking with people about this place, and I want to share with you what makes it special, what makes it ordinary, what makes it real. Swamp Ward, yeah. It was like another universe. We used to go and raise proper hell as kids in there. A lot of stuff like that went on back then. This was years and years ago. I never changed my mind about what we did at the time. I knew we were in the swamp. It was swamp. So then we got nicknamed Swamp Ward. Swamp Ward. Swamp Ward. Swamp Ward. Swamp Ward. Swamp Ward. What's a swamp ward or always a swamp ward? I'm Laura Murray, and you're listening to Stories of the Swamp Ward from Kingston, Ontario, Canada. Mother couldn't speak English. She used to send me to pick up groceries for her because, you see, Dad was at work. She couldn't, she couldn't leave. She had borders and everything. So I would go, and a little bit of English that I had, I'd go up to the store and ask for a pound of eggs. <laughs> I didn't know eggs were, you know, and they would very patiently tell me, the Doyle girls would say, now, Mary, eggs come in dozens. You, you get a dozen of eggs. Okay, so I remembered the next time. Then, you see, I could write, you know, and then especially when I started to write. All these things, you see, that's how I got my education. And she loved it. (laughs) As you can hear, corner stores were the heart of the Swamp Ward. So this second episode takes you into quite a few of them. Just to get things rolling, I think we need another quick story about eggs. And right across the street, for a long time, had been McGlade's. But when I got there in the 70s, it was Reed's Variety. Jimmy and Wanda Reed. And Jimmy who was the proprietor, and he really was extremely cynical and at the same time the most wonderful man in the world. Uh, it was a neighborhood hangout. One Halloween, he was selling eggs, as he always had, and my husband was running the bookshop. It was about midnight, and there was a light on in the window, and uh, he was a wonderful target. There was only light there, and he was little old scholarly studying, and the eggs started hitting the window. And Oh, he would go out and run out and yell, and then he stomped over to Jimmy's Jimmy was open at midnight. He said, what do you think you're doing? You know what they're doing with those eggs, don't you? He said, no, what are they doing? He says, do you think those men want a dozen eggs at midnight? And Jimmy said, why, I hadn't really thought about that. He has all these cartons of eggs piled up to sell to the, the neighborhood hooligans. It was a really charming. He was a dear, dear man. Of all the interviews I've done about the Swamp Ward, there isn't one that doesn't feature one or another local shops or shopkeepers. I heard about Mr. Devine many times, for example, with his one funny eye. I heard about the terrors of bagging potatoes among the rats in the cellar of Gordon's. I heard about a barber named Spider, and another named Orior. Not to mention the Blaney barbering empire that continues to this day. I heard about a baker whose son was allergic to flour. Then there was the store Famous, the best place to buy squid in the 1970s. But you won't be surprised to hear that the hands-down most popular purchases were tobacco and candy. We sold a pile of cigarettes. Gee, we sold a pile of cigarettes. 
when I was going the first year at Rigi, the Jesuits, you know, I went downstairs one day in the basement at the pool hall and the Jesuits were selling cigarettes for a nickel in a, in a jug. And so I came on and I said to my dad, you know, the priests are selling cigarettes there for a nickel. How come we're not doing that? So we started, we, oh, jump. We sold a pile of them, you know. It's amazing. I miss the people, eh? Because everybody came, eh? I just, I've done it so long, you know, that you just miss people, eh? I find it really hard, hard to get going. And I miss selling, like I miss selling tobacco, it's hard to believe. I know it kills you and all this now, but when you did it all your life, Laverne Cochran may miss his customers, but they haven't forgotten him. Cochran's, yes. Cochran's. Uh-huh. Yes. Uh-huh. And he was down there for years and years and years. He just retired not too long ago. Yeah. And uh, the last time I was in there, um, I went in to say goodbye to him. And that somebody came in looking for something. And just as you go inside the door to the right, Laverne <laughs> said, it's up there in that top shelf. Just a second, I get your cloth to dust it off. Cochran's is actually still open under its new owner, Murad Bakshi. And of course, Murad still sells cigarettes and candy. Back in the day, you could buy candy at every corner if you had a penny or an empty pop bottle. But some sweets were special. Birds was on Bagot and North, and he was well known for his toffee apples. <laughs> All the kids in the neighborhood always went to Mr. Bird for taffy apples. He had the best taffy apples around. The best ones anywhere. <laughs> <laughs> and her husband was a miserable old butter. <laughs> Sylvia McElroy confirms all this lore. She would know. She was Leo Bird's youngest daughter. People used to come from out of town for mom's taffy apples. And uh, dad was sitting in the store. We had a little pop belly stove and uh, a big bushel of the Macintosh when they're just that nice tart stage, you know. Mom would be in there with a big pot on the stove of taffy going, and she had a special recipe. Um, now, because she didn't read or write, these, this was in her head, so it was, she used vinegar. And the day she did taffy apples, you had no problem with your sinuses because the house reeked of the vinegar, the strong vinegar. Now, she had a bit of competition. It was up on Sydenham Street, I believe it was, Sinklers. And uh, they did taffy apples up there, too. But we seemed always they came back to Mountain. Little children did not like my dad. My dad was very hard of hearing, and my mom was a sweetheart. So they would peek in the store, and dad was there. They wouldn't come in, these little ones, because we had a a huge candy counter that uh, was all glassed in. And, of course, they want penny candy. And he didn't have the patience. And then if they they brought uh, drink bottles in, to exchange for candy, you see. Dad would say, no, just take those back where you got them. <laughs> wouldn't, he wouldn't take those bottles. And yet if they saw Mom, Mom would take them, you see. 
Leo Bird, or as he really was, Leo Loiseau, was the son of a barber who translated his name to Bird because it was better for business in an Anglo environment. Leo started his working life early when his father died in World War I, leaving a widow, Annie, and eight children. The eldest child, Alice, was 22, and Joseph just a baby. Leo learned to cut meat, which he did for a few years. He worked in a factory in Oshawa when newly married, and later he cleaned the cathedral. At the store, he got to be his own boss, but he worked 364 days a year. I was the last to help in the store. I had five girls. So um, I said, I will never, ever own a grocery store. <laughs> it ruled our life. You know, it did. It really did. Rosalind Routbard's father ran a business a block and a half south of Bird's. My dad had a small little delicatessen, Hyman's Delicatessen. Upstairs was Bob Frey's sign business. All the meats came from Montreal. Montreal smoked meat, corned beef, pressed chicken, salami, hot dogs. And then my mother would be in the kitchen. There would be a variety of homemade other things. My mother would make soups, she would make potato pancakes. There would be a variety of Jewish dishes, cabbage rolls, uh, sweet and sour meatballs, noodle puddings, and we had pinball machines, and um, I'm trying to think what they called the record machines, a jukebox. And the records were changed weekly, and I only remember the last name of the people that would change the machines. Their last name was Lee, which is a common Chinese name. Uh, and they would come in with all kinds of stories from their past while they were changing the machines or changing the records or fixing up the pinball machines. And there was always music on. father used to have a slogan, a sandwich fit for a king, and he also had another one, in God we trust, everyone else pay cash. It was a great big sign as you came in the delicatessen, and yet my father gave credit left, right, and center. My mother was mostly in the kitchen, and they worked long hours. My mother would be there at five o'clock in the morning for deliveries of milk, ice cream, ice, um, bread which was delivered by horse and wagon and my dad would come in later and get his meats prepared and sharpen his knives and clean up and before you know it they were busy until 10 11 o'clock at night seven days a week even the sabbath if we were eating and somebody came in they'd join us although rosalind and her siblings were expected to help in the deli they also spent a lot of time wandering around the neighborhood. A block away was Sussman, the kosher butcher. Well, that was just down the street. We used to go and raise proper Hellas kids in there because it was a sawdust floor with blood all over the place. And the butcher used to slaughter right there. We always had a dirty, filthy, smelly apron on. I can still see that apron more than anything else. And I remember always going into Blaney's, too, and 
Because there was a lot of time spent with my sister, a lot of times it was, oh, here come the Silverman twins, which was nice. And you wandered around as a kid when you had free time. And you might have had friends who lived in that direction. And you could go back and forth to houses. You get the impression of kids swimming around the neighborhood, like fish in an aquarium, visiting. There was a Gordon store up on uh, Montreal and Bay. And then there was a McDonald's shoe store. Before that, it was the bars. And they had a little clothing store. And uh, Eva's a bar. Went to school with my sister Elsie. I remember uh, the Zabars were Jewish people, and they, Elsie went and had a Passover meal with them. And she was talking about how they washed the dishes after this, and that's this, and after this. <laughs> Quite an experience for her. And uh, the Frankels, it was a fish store. And then there was uh, Milne McCall's drugstore on the corner of Charles and uh, Montreal. The other thing I remember is there was a shoemaker's on Charles Street, and then they moved over to Montreal. His name was Harry Tanovich. And we used to <laughs> used to go in there and talk to Harry. We called him Harry. His name was Era, I think. Um, we used to have long conversations with him. He'd be working away at the shoes. And... Harry Tanovich seemed to be a particular source of fascination. There was a shoemaker in the immediate area, Harry Tanovich. Harry was an atheist. Harry had uh, four daughters. He came from uh, around Poland, Czechoslovakia. I don't know exactly where. I would go in and watch him make shoes, you know, and stand there as he was doing it and so on and talk to him. But uh, Harry said uh, there was no God, not from what he saw in his life over in that area and the slaughter and the killing and so on that went on. There's no God. And he brought the girls up that way. Yeah, he says, you know, the, he says, there's no God, Bob. He said, uh, with what I saw in my life. Stores weren't just stores. They were places for conversation, places where kids could talk to grown-ups who weren't their parents, and where you could talk to people from other parts of the world. In the end, maybe that was more important than what you went in to buy. Starting in the 1970s, centralized distribution, cheap imported goods, 24-hour supermarkets, increased car ownership, and other cultural and economic shifts put pressure on the Swamp Ward's grocers, manufacturers, and artisans. There aren't as many around as there used to be. But let's close with the story of a Swamp Ward store that opened in 1949 and is still providing essentials in the north end of Kingston. The Quattrochi family's history in Canada goes back to the 1880s. Joe Quattrochi, a market gardener from Sicily, established himself as a fruit wholesaler in the Ottawa Valley in the 1920s. By World War II, he was delivering produce to a huge swath of eastern Ontario. His second son, Phil, learned a lot from the business. My dad, in 1939, then went in the military. They found out that he had worked in a store and you know, knew all about inventory control and all this stuff. So they sent him to the West Coast, and he worked in stores north of Vancouver. They put them in the bush. They put them all up. So he knew his inventory control from a little mom-and-pop business with, you know, 10 or 15 employees and 8 or 10 trucks to 
a huge military, and he learned the systems. So when he came back from the war, he had all these systems in his head and in his, and he wanted to put the systems in place in their business. And my grandfather had his way of doing things and he was very successful. And he had an older brother. And you saw the godfather, the older brother always gets everything and that's the way it was. There's no, that's just the way it was. So my father was the next brother. He's not as important. So the older brother and my grandfather and the other brothers, my dad was kind of too far ahead of them. So there was that problem. The other thing was that around this time, Phil married Rose, a girl from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Her father and his father were friends from the old country. Although Rose was a sales girl, her world had been pretty high-toned. Her father was an even more successful produce salesman than Joe Quattrochi. His customers were H.J. Hines, the Carnegie's, the Mellons, okay, the Guggenheim's. All these people were his customers. They came to his store and he looked after them. And he had five, five daughters. So one daughter ran the meat department. She was a big girl. One daughter ran the fruit department. Another daughter ran the groceries and canned goods. My mother did public relations and the financing and accounting. And my grandfather did the buying and supervise everybody. So it was my mother's job to go and have tea with Mrs. Hines and Mrs. Mellon. His chauffeur would pick her up. She would go. She would spend the afternoon with these lonely women, okay, whose husbands were building a company around the world, right? So they were always on the go. So she became pretty knowledgeable in, in how to deal with people and, and whatever. So my mom and dad come. They decide that Perth, Ontario, and Smith Falls, my mom's from Pittsburgh, right? You go to Perth, like what was there? Two houses and a church? And she hated it. So they started looking along the seaway. They decided on Kingston and they opened a little store on Bay Montreal Street. And my dad at first would go and draw stuff from uh, Smith Falls, from the warehouse there. And then he started to uh, go to Toronto or Ottawa or Montreal and, and buy his own product. And when he would come home, he would unload the whole truck on the street. And everybody got to know that Phil went to Toronto on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. So about noon, one o'clock, people would be lined up on Montreal Street waiting to buy things from the front of the store. The whole front, right out of the street, they'd have produce all displayed. He started like that, and then he discovered too that he needed more customers to get more volume to move the product faster, right? So then on the days he wasn't buying product, my mother ran the store and he would go store to store. And then again, he'd do the same thing that his father did. He'd say, look, take it on consignment. If you don't sell it, I'll pick it up in a couple days. You didn't lose anything. With vertical and horizontal integration in the grocery business, Quattrochi's has pulled back quite a bit since its heyday. But Joe Quattrochi, the grandson of the first Joe, certainly still has a niche up on Railway Street, a little further north than the first family store. There was an Indian doctor who came to my dad in the 70s, uh, and she asked him if he would bring in food products that the Indians wanted because they didn't want to drive to Toronto to have to get it. So he started, and he started with a small section of spices, three or four types. 
And that developed into like 175 different varieties of spice we carry now. And the same with beans. We had, you know, lentils and some dolls. And now we have about 35 types of beans. All of that developed from this Dr. Mohan, I think it was. So he started carrying other things. We'd always had had uh, Italian products. So then we started carrying the Indian products. We discovered other people would buy the same products that this ethnic group would buy. So then we brought in products for Chinese people. And then later on, the Chinese market got big and they opened their own grocery store, which is great. And then we just went on country to country, you know, stuff from Europe. Well, bring in Polish stuff, bring in Czech stuff, bring in uh, Yugoslavian product. You know, it, it just it just keeps growing. And then all of a sudden we had a multinational store. So we started bringing in more products. And the more products we bring, the more products were asked for. And then I discovered it wasn't just Mexico. It's Central America and it's South America. Like everybody takes these people for granted. There's a heck of a lot of people coming from from these areas. You know, and they're the new immigrant that all the families stay tight. They work hard. They're going to be buying the houses and building and they're already in construction. And, you know, they're the next wave. And hopefully the, the Syrians and we're bringing in products for them now. Like, I just say, what do you want? Tell me what you want, I'll find it. I've been doing this since I was 10 years old buying. So I can find anything anywhere. She's on her own. Georgie's. Yeah. 10 bucks each. Yeah. No. How much? $3.40? Sixty-three forty delivered. Okay, ship them. Thanks so much for listening to Stories of the Swamp Ward from Kingston, Ontario, Canada. Stories of the Swamp Ward is produced by me, Laura Murray, with audio production and story consulting by the imaginative and meticulous Phil Lichty. Today, you heard the voices of Anne-Marie Blaney, Kevin Blaney, Laverne Cochran, Mary Crawford, Rose DeShaw, Isabel Gordon, Bob Martin, Sylvia McElroy, Joe Quattrochi, Vi Rosamond, and Rosalind Roudbart. Interviews were conducted by Scott Rutherford and me, Laura Murray. Other assistants along the way came from Ronan Goldfarb, Justine Hobbs, Yanni Pantis, and Ella Mackay Singh. What we didn't learn from real live people, we learned from the Queen's University Archives, the Canadian Census, and the Kingston Frontenac Public Library. Queen's University and the City of Kingston Heritage Fund provided essential and generous financial support. And thanks also to Friends of Kingston Inner Harbour and CFRC, Queen's Campus Radio 101.9, our partners in these podcasts. If you want to know more about this little spot of the world, check out swampwardhistory.com, the website of the Swampward and Inner Harbour History Project. And there's a special companion blog post to this podcast episode at swampwardhistory.com slash keepingshop. You can see photos and maps there for a full immersive experience. Well, we don't have the technology to give you the smell of cigarettes, vinegar, or Indian spices. You'll have to provide that yourself.
I should tell you about what's next. It's the inner harbour. That means swamps. Oil used to drip down into this one swamp area. Dumps. Piling that garbage. Good-looking girls at the woolen mill. Pop out all these bobby pins and they look like a million dollars, you know. Even some golf. It's a good one. You'll like it.